Hi, and welcome to the third episode of What I'm Obsessed With Now, with your friendly host and obsessive, Byron. I'm so excited to get to talk about Bigfoot. I'm putting this one out there. I want Bigfoot to be real and younger Byron believes. This is largely because of the movie Harry and the Hendersons. He seemed like such a good friend and really misunderstood. It also gave me the belief that wood-panelled cars were desirable. Thankfully, that one I've grown out of. A theme kept coming up in my research about these mythical creatures, and that is, they are a creature that beliefs and fears fit well on. This is how the sceptics would describe what is being experienced. These sightings are ways to explain something unexplainable, a fear manifested. But as we'll see, they're not always creatures of fear. The attribution of their motives vary in Native American legends, as well as modern sightings. In post-European arrival lore, they are seen as either monsters, wildlife, or spirit creatures. In some cases, they are seen as sexy, because we're humans and there isn't a creature someone doesn't want to get it on with. But don't worry, we'll get to that. Looking homeward, there is the Australian version of the Bigfoot legend, and that's the Yowie. The reason I love the Yowie is pretty simple. It's a chocolate with a toy inside. Think Kinder Surprise, but with animals. They're still around, they're colourful, they're chocolate, and they give you a toy. That's where my love started. It has kept me going beyond this sweet treat, out of a sense of national pride and a thought of what if, as I have walked through the bush. It's not drop bears you have to watch out for, I tell you. Many people argue for what people are really seeing. Some believe, and others don't. Amongst the scientific reasons for why people might see Bigfoot, it must be noted a common occurrence is an inebriated witness. And of course, our old friend Greed raises his head. I think the reason we want to believe is a sense of discovery. It is incredibly human to want to discover, to be the first or the best. We are now going into space to satiate this need to discover. Bigfoot is discovery on Earth. We will dive into that and more, so buckle into your wood-panelled station wagons and get ready for a traipse through the woods. We're going to go looking for the one and only Bigfoot. So who is Bigfoot? Let's start with the name. I mean, if you aren't sure about how this name came about, that's a concern. It's a nickname given to the creature attributed to a Wyandotte chief. In Canada, the Bigfoot is known as Sasquatch. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the name comes from an anglicised pronunciation of the Salish people's word, Sasquat. Etymology is fascinating. As mentioned, we even have our own version of the Bigfoot here in Australia, the Yowie. They come from our Indigenous people's stories, and has been taken up into the Australian culture. The Yowie, like its North American cousin, varies across the country in description and motivation. I will be doing a focused episode at some stage because the Yowie deserves more than a supporting role. The Bigfoot Sasquatch is described as being greater than 6 foot and up to 9 foot. It has the strength of the Hulk, and depending on the myth and story, either a placid, gentle giant 
or horrifically aggressive. It roams the backwoods of North America, only popping its head out to scare a camp or get some food. Frankly, it's the reigning champion of hide-and-seek. For such a large creature, it's amazing it can go so long without being seen. They really do deserve a gold star. Really, he just wants to be left alone. I do keep referring to him as a him, and that is probably because those who describe him use the male pronoun. They are also nearly always male. Do with that as you will. So this big, strong and temperamental creature lives out in the forest and is a champ at being unseen. But that isn't all there is about Bigfoot, as we will see. A point I find interesting is the prevalence of Bigfoot-type creatures across the world. This doesn't necessarily mean they are real, but it says something about us humans. There is a concept of the collective unconscious, which is the idea that there is a base structure of the unconscious shared by members of the same species. This is something we'll delve into in our psychology series. Perhaps there is something deep down inside that makes us want to see the big hairy guy. Let's get going and take a look at Bigfoot in the pre-Europe North America. <coughs> Much like our Yowie here in Australia, the Bigfoot lore in pre-European Americas is as diverse as the people who live there. I wanted to look at a couple here to understand better where Bigfoot started and grew from. The differences are just as interesting as the commonality telling us about what the Bigfoot might be and a reflection of ourselves in many cases. I'd like to thank the website native-languages.org and bfro.net for the guide and information they provide. Go over to both these sites, but be warned, you'll be drawn into a deep information hole. A warning before we get going, and perhaps I should have put this at the top. My pronunciation is not going to be great. First of all, I'm an Australian, so, you know, the Australian accent gets in there. But also, these names are difficult for anyone. If you know how to pronounce these, feel free to get in touch and we can do an interview to teach the audience and myself. The first group we will look at are the Sioux people's creatures, which is called the Chiatanka. This translates as Big Elder Brother. The Chiatanka is portrayed as a guide, both physical and spiritual. It is interesting that there seems to be fear around many Bigfoot accounts. The Chiatanka is seen as a protector of the forests and those within it. His physical features are described as a big hairy man. Some accounts reporting that he can transform into an animal which represents his paranormal attributes. There is a sense of respect for him in recounts from the Sioux people. A guardian and a connection to the earth a being that links us to the earth and to the other realm. It feels similar to the Mother Nature myth. Many talk about him standing over them and watching over them, the protector. The Bok, in contrast, is more of an evil creature. This is according to northern tribes like the Balakula. These creatures eat men and molest women. They are seen as terrifying creatures to be avoided. These creatures are the Native American boogeymen, nothing like the guides of the Chiatanka. It is interesting to see the differences in opinion. First, are they speaking about the same creature or have we artificially grouped them? Second, is this more of a commentary of the people of these areas? What stories they needed to stay safe and communicate? We use stories to convey messages that are deeper than what we see at the surface. 
Is there a story that needed to be told, and the bok was the vehicle through which this could be done? To this point, in Chinook and Salishan stories, the bok is described as being benign, like the Sasquatch. And let's look at the Sasquatch. Bigfoot is easier to say, but doesn't have the romanticism of Sasquatch. The Sasquatch is seen as a benign creature, big and hairy. It is a powerful wild creature with a supernatural element. This is the creature that modern Bigfoot lore feels most aligned to. There is a more animalistic feel, not in an aggressive manner, but as being another creature amongst the trees. The spiritual nature is not as strong, which lends to those who believe he is a blood and bones creature. The Sasquatch is viewed as an evolutionary cousin of ourselves. And what better feeling is there than being around family? The Sasquatch is the perfect creature to move into modern time because he does feel like a bridge between the myth of the Native Americans and the scientific view of the modern age. Before we travel forward to the modern day, let's look at the interesting subject of the Tool River Hairy Man pictograph. The painted rock takes its name from the Tool River Indian Reserve in the Sierra Nevada foothills in California. The rock gained its Bigfoot link in the early 70s. Interestingly, it is one of the few Bigfoot stories coming out of California, which honestly surprises me because California has the image of being a place looking for a conspiracy theory. The rock itself is pretty amazing. The eye is drawn to the big hairy man, eyes like bright lights from behind a mop of dark hair. His pose is the traditional one you would strike if you were pretending to be a ghost or Frankenstein's monster. There are a number of other creatures that have been seen as the hairy man's family. Around it are little figures that look human, which gives us an understanding of the size of these creatures. Two of the people look to be staring at one of the creatures. Looking at them, you get a sense of amazement. And it is a pretty amazing painting that lends one to create stories. The pre-European creatures we have grouped as Bigfoot vary in their attributes. They are the boogeymen in some areas, stories to stop children wandering off into the wilderness. More interestingly, it is the Bigfoot as protector and guide. A link between us and nature, this world and the other. This is an interesting thought and an opportunity for us to stop and think about our connection to this world. We are currently on a path to destroy the natural world. We could take a leaf out of the Bigfoot creature and those who embody him. We need another protector. If you know about Native American myth beyond the Bigfoot, please get in touch. I would love to do an episode or two on Native American history. Now let's get into the modern Bigfoot world and modern research. The more I looked into the subject, the more I wanted to know what Bigfoot research looked like today. This was harder than I thought. The Bigfoot community is hard to get a hold of as the myth himself. But I was lucky to be able to speak with Dr. Jeff Maldrum. I'd like to send my thanks over to him in Idaho for speaking with me and for sharing his wealth of knowledge. Here is a portion of our conversation. The full interview will be released Wednesday. That's Melbourne, Australia time. And it is a really informative chat. Well, quality of evidence, and I've discovered, rests in large measure on the qualification of the observer, of the evaluator. And so from, from my perspective, as one who is steeped in the analysis of footprints and uh, comparative functional morphology of the foot, the footprint evidence is by far the most compelling in my mind. It's 
it, it's it's more objective. It lends itself to repeated evaluation and and you know um, and rather uh, uh, well yeah objective uh, objective observation. Whereas so many other experiences are oftentimes anecdotal and highly subjective personal experiences. Um, I think close behind that is the other physical evidence, and namely the uh, hair samples that we have that defy identification. Unfortunately and frustratingly, they also defy the yielding of DNA by virtue of their, um, their uh, intrinsic structure. That is, they lack a cellular medulla. And that's a fairly consistent trait, which makes it very challenging uh, to get DNA. When DNA has been gotten from samples, um, often it's a very cursory analysis of that evidence. And, you know, just a few thousand base pairs sometimes. And, and a mitochondrial gene, rarely a nuclear gene, to uh, go along with that. And so... Um, Almost invariably, I mean, if it's not readily identifiable as some other form of wildlife, it, it turns out to be human. I mean, if, if it has primate characteristics, and it's assumed that it's either contamination through mishandling by the uh, observer, the collector, or um, that it's um, uh, that it is a misidentified human hair, and and that's possible. That's possible. We've had this. You know, humans sometimes do lack the cellular medulla. But that's the exception, not the rule. We have consistent samples over decades collected independently from disparate locations that all have the same morphology. They differ usually just in the in the proportions of the of the uh, uh, pigments that lend uh, color. Uh, so blending, yeah, blending from uh, you know the reported very pale, almost white up through buckskin and beige and reddish and dark brown and almost black. And it just is the proportion of you and melanin uh, that these hair samples have, but they all have the same width. I mean, th there's no question they're primate. So it boils down to, are they human or are they non-human? And, uh, and I'm, I'm quite confident that they're, that they represent a consistent uh, non-human source but doggone it, we still haven't got any DNA from them. And that, you know, as an anatomist, I'm comfortable with the anatomy. We should be able to come to a conclusion on the basis of the hair morphology. But, um, but that doesn't quite put it over the top for most people who want a definitive. They think that the DNA is the only definitive means of identification. As a Bigfoot expert, as well as an expert in locomotion and how the foot informs this, Dr. Meldrum explained what we are able to ascertain from the footprints that have been found. The distinctions that we see, these, are, these uh, convincing footprints are not simply enlarged facsimiles of a human foot. There are considerable distinctions. For example, they lack a longitudinal arch. They are flat. They're much broader than a human, especially through the heel, um, and which one would expect given their massive size, because, you know, as as uh, your linear dimensions increase, your um, uh, volumetric proportions uh, triple, treble, you know. And so um, the, uh, there has, you would expect there to be changes in the morphology. And so the broader heel is an important one. Um, obviously, the toes show no sign of, uh, 
of uh, shoe wear. They, they're not confined or cramped. The little toe's not turned on its side. And uh, there's less uh, disparity between the big toe and the lateral toe. So the toes are more, a little bit more subequal. The pads are more expanded and so forth. Um, they show a degree of midfoot flexibility that is characteristic of non-human primates and that, that also lack a longitudinal arch. So when the foot moves through the step cycle, rather than the entire foot acting as a lever with the fulcrum at the ball of the foot, the foot flexes or breaks across the mid-tarsus and uh, the heel comes up first. Sometimes that produces a very distinctive pressure ridge, which has been kind of a signature that uh, you know researchers now kind of look for. Uh, it's, it's interesting to hear all the Bigfoot enthusiasts talking about mid-tarsal breaks when uh, 20 years ago, there was probably a half a dozen people who could give you a, a reasonable explanation for what that meant and, and its significance in, in human evolution. And now it's, uh, you know, just parlance, uh, vocabulary of Bigfoot enthusiasts. Um, <clears throat> but I, but it's, it's very significant. I think it's very an important uh, consideration. So your question, a Bigfoot, when it walks, it walks with a compliant gait, this broad, flat foot distributes weight over that surface area more efficiently than the concentrated focal points under the ball and, and, uh, and heel of an arched foot. Um, you know, the evidence suggests that they're capable of bursts of speed, as are chimps and gorillas. I mean, they're remarkably uh, athletic and muscular. It's said that a chimpanzee has five times the strength of a human man. So if you imagine that Sasquatch retains that muscular physiology characteristic of non-human primates and hominins, perhaps early hominins before the human gracilization, then it's not only immensely strong, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's capable of, of stepping, leaping, of running uh, very fast. Now, whether it's a marathon runner, that's something that's uniquely human, I believe, uh, amongst all of the apes that uh, we and, and that was part and parcel with our lightening of our skeleton and muscular system is we became, we also developed a much greater um, aerobic capacity for endurance running. And, uh, you know, to the point that a strategy of, of hunter-gatherers is what they call persistence hunting, where they can keep up the pace for hour upon hour and literally run an, uh, an ungulate into the ground to where it collapses. And uh, they can walk right up to it and just dispatch it without any further effort. So I don't think a Sasquatch, I, I, I doubt that a Sasquatch can do that. Uh, but it's possible. Who knows? I mean, maybe with bipedalism, there has been more selection for uh, running behaviors as well. I mean, they clearly, there is evidence. I shouldn't say they clearly. That's a presumptive. There is evidence to suggest that they have a very large home range you know, perhaps on the order of a thousand square miles. And so, you know, uh, it may be that they cover a lot of territory on their nightly forays to forage for rather dispersed resources. Um, I think that's another important contrast and, and an adaptation of that mid-tarsal break uh, by, by keeping that, uh, that suppleness of the midfoot. It allows for the negotiation of very steep terrain much easier than we do 
and also their their massive musculature. I mean, if we take uh, Patty at her face, the Patterson Gimlin film, those massive thighs with huge quadriceps and 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 uh, hamstrings and massive gluteal muscles, that's a, a a mountain climbing machine. And in that, if that were like you said, if that were the race. Um, we would lose hands down <laughs> because the power and strength of going up vertical inclines. And this is something that's, that numerous, uh, a number of witnesses have, have commented on, um, uh, seeing just the, uh, the ability to traverse. One, one that I can speak on firsthand, we had a, a witness here locally who, who may have seen one. Otherwise, it was the biggest guy in a snowmobile jumpsuit home snowmobile uh, jumpsuit that, that you can imagine but when it became aware that it was observed and his dog started barking in that direction it turned off the road and at this time there was about three feet of snow on the ground and it went through the snow through three feet drifts or snow pack and it went up the mountainside and over the ridge he said it would have taken him easily you know 45 minutes an hour to crest that ditch in that snow, this thing did it in like five minutes. It just motored its way up over through that deep snow. And uh, so he that really impressed him, the power, and convinced him all the more that this was not a human. I'd like to thank Dr. Meldrum for speaking with me. He took time out of his life to speak with a guy from Australia he didn't know and share a lifetime of research, not just on Bigfoot. <laughs> Bigfoot has captured the attention of many people as we have seen. Bigfoot has been on screen for a long time as well. The excitement of discovering a new creature and the mystical element opens up stories that we can all fall into. I want to speak about the Bigfoot movie that got me interested in the subject. Let's travel back to the 80s and a little Byron. I love Harry and the Hendersons. I love it when I first saw it and I love it now. The movie starts out with the Henderson family hitting a Bigfoot in their aforementioned wood-panelled station wagon. Do you call the police, the newspaper, or do you strap it to the roof of the car and go home? Why put it on the roof and drive it on home? They think the creature is dead. What's a harm, right? While a hunter tracking Big Harry gets their license plate and the plot, it thickens. George, the father a very 80s name, goes to the garage and checks on the big guy. Starts to think of how he'll spend the money he'll get from exhibiting Bigfoot all over. But Harry isn't dead and goes into the house for a snack. He's friendly, luckily, and the family decide to return him to the wild. But Harry doesn't want to go back in the car, you know, the one that nearly killed him. Instead, he's off for a trip to the city. I mean, if someone hit you with... I mean, if someone hit you with their car, would you want to go back in it with them? No, Bigfoot is no dope. There's a hunt for him, and then a race to get him back to the wild. Now, I've set the story up. You need to watch it. I don't want to spoil the ending because it's pretty great. All I will say is, he speaks. I love this movie because it had Bigfoot in it, but also because it shows us there is more to life than money. There is family and doing the right thing. It is a great message. Even big scary creatures can be friendly. Don't judge a book by its cover. And the way the hunter acted? Maybe it's us who are the real monster. Also, it's incredibly cheesy. 80s in all its splendour. 
watch Harry and the Hendersons and have a feel-good day. Let me know what you think of it. Do you love it as much as I do? Now, before we stomp our way to Australia and the Yowie, I just want to stop quickly on an interesting subject. Bigfoot erotica. Now I'm going to say that once again and slowly. Bigfoot erotica. Now I'm not going to read any of it out because it frankly makes me feel uncomfortable. But knock yourself out, there's a lot out there. Bigfoot erotica is, as you can imagine, about erotic encounters with the Bigfoot. I mean, most Bigfoot fans would be happy to get a glimpse, but these people are hoping to get a foot-long experience. If you are interested, curious, or it gets your temperature going, then give it a Google, lay back and think of the forest. There has even been a scandal in the US about Bigfoot erotica. How, you ask? In a heated congressional race, Denver Riggleman, whose name I'm sure is made up, was caught on camera with a white supremacist. Don't worry, no horny Bigfoot yet. This didn't stop him. His campaign kept going past that. Then it came out, he was into Bigfoot erotica. He even wrote the book, The Mating Habits of Bigfoot and Why Women Want Him. (sighs) This book sounds like it was written by someone who lost their partner to a Bigfoot or someone with big feet, if you know what I'm saying. I'll keep my analysis to myself. Wouldn't want to cause offence, even small offence. He claims it was a parody, but I mean, there are a number of pictures of Bigfoot wangs on his social media accounts. They've been scrubbed by now, but the internet never forgets. Understandably, being caught with a racist and deep into Bigfoot porn, he lost the race to his Democratic opponent. What? He won. What do you mean he won? He was into Bigfoot porn. Yes, I know who the president is, but Bigfoot porn. Okay, I've just been informed that he won the race. All I can say is, Mr. Riggleman, stay away from Harry. Now, to cleanse ourselves of the thoughts of Bigfoot erotica, let's delve into the Yowie, the Australian version of a big hairy cryptid. I was introduced to the Yowie by the previously mentioned chocolate with a little toy inside. Like the Kinder Surprise, but the toy was generally an animal with a bit of information about them is a great way to get kids interested in the natural world. They're colourful and it's normal chocolate, not that weird dark white chocolate the kinder has. Check out their website, yaoiworld.com. I know they're trying to make money and unfortunately they aren't giving me any of it. I mean, I did talk about Bigfoot porn, so I'm not surprised a kid's chocolate doesn't want to advertise. That being said, it's nice to see some education and conservation efforts happening because of it. There are also some fun videos and activities that, as an adult, I of course did not lose an embarrassing amount of time to. Now onto the mythical creature, the Yowie. I find it interesting that descriptions of the Yowie are similar to those of its North American cousin. Six to twelve foot tall, hairy and with big feet. An argument against it being real is that its tracks vary in size, shape and number of toes. Not a great deal of consistent evidence. Like the Bigfoot, the Yowie has been described as peaceful and aggressive. Just like the Native Americans, the indigenous people of Australia are varied throughout the country. Keep an eye out for an episode or two 
looking at this in the future. With this in mind, it makes sense that the stories vary depending on where you are in the country. The word Yowie is believed to mean spirit that roams the earth at night. In my research, I came across the thought that the Yowie is related to the Aboriginal legend of Yahoo. Now, not the search engine you say, do you remember when we searched on? Or do you still have your Yahoo email address? Ha, <laughs> simpler times. A recounting from Robert Holden is pretty terrifying. The natives of Australia believe in Yahoo. This being they describe as resembling a man of nearly the same height with long white hair hanging from the head over the features. The arms as extraordinarily long, furnished at the extremities with great talons, and the feet turned backwards, so that on flying from man, the imprint of the foot appears as if the being had travelled in the opposite direction. Altogether, they describe it as a hideous monster of an unearthly character and ape-like appearance. What? I mean, that's just terrifying. Nothing like my colourful chocolate mates who have animals in their bellies. The sightings I have read about are also as terrifying as the description of the Yahoo. Screams and mutilated animals. I mean, Bigfoot sightings are described as them staring at you and then running off when being spotted. Yowies shriek into the sky and mutilate animals. Can Australia not have one animal that doesn't maim or kill you? Even cute koalas can claw you savagely. And there's a chlamydia problem in the population. That's not a joke. Check it out. Just one animal that doesn't kill you or give you an STI. Is that too much to ask? If you're interested in Yowie sightings, the website yowiehunters.com.au is a great place to start. I find it interesting that a lot of the evidence is very similar to North American Bigfoot evidence. This is either evidence of North American leakage or there's a common ancestor. And before we leave, can we just acknowledge that people at some stage were thinking to themselves, how can we get kids into nature? Someone in a meeting said, how about a nightmare creature that mutilates animals, has giant talons and will kill you? Here, kid, have a bright green yaoi. They are sweet. Just don't Google them. Just eat the chocolate and play with the toy. Talons not on the cute little guy. The sense of what if and the wonderment of the Bigfoot is captivating. I would like to put this forward. We have a world of animals proven to exist that are just as amazing. The sad news is that they will be just as mythical as Bigfoot if we continue the way we are going. The gorilla is as close as you'll get to a confirmed Bigfoot. They are an amazing creature. They tell us something about our evolution. I won't harp on the point. If you love the mythical Bigfoot, you'll be astounded by what is actually out there. Let's not let those go to myth as well. And the giraffe. If someone told you about them without you seeing one yourself, you'd think they were high. I think like many of the conspiracy theories and mysteries, it is a sense of community and friendship that drives the people who believe. That is why I'm interested in the fun conspiracy myths, and if it gets you to spend time out in the bush, I think that's a net win. Bigfoot may never be found, and Yowie is likely to stay as a myth, but those who search for the creatures have built friendships and a place to belong. This brings me back to thoughts of sitting around a fire, having a drink and talking crap. 
Those moments are more important than the subjects we focused on. I'm looking forward to future conversations about Bigfoot and Yowie and all manner of weird subject. And we will definitely be talking about Bigfoot erotica. To catch all the future episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcasting app. Leave a rating for the show to grow our obsessive community. Follow the socials and join your fellow obsessives. Links are all in the show notes. Again, a big thank you to Dr. Meldrum. I hope to have him on again in the future. You never know, next time he may have found a Bigfoot. Until next time, I'm Byron. I'll never look at a foot long the same way again. And I'll speak to you on the next episode. Written, produced and edited by Byron Gatt for Pitchkiss Media. Sound designed by Lily and Fred. They designed the barking. I edited out. I'd like to thank Dr. Meldrum for his time and the great chat. Theme music from mixkit.co. Check out the full credits in the show notes and how to get in touch. 